Welcome to the All About Alts podcast, where we explore the world of alternative investing to help you find financial independence. Join our host, Newview Trust's president, Jason DeBono, as he covers a variety of topics with different guest speakers to discuss tax and alternative investing strategies. It is never too late to start taking control of your financial future, and we are so excited for you to be joining us for this opportunity to hear from some of the best in the business. Hey, welcome everybody to the All About Alts podcast. I am Jason and I am your host today and I am joined by a good friend of mine and legal counselor that defies the stereotypes of most attorneys. So we've got Joe Siegel joining us. Hey, Joe, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And for those that don't know Joe, Joe's an Orlando native as am I. And gosh, I'd say probably between 15 and 18 years or so, maybe back to 05 and 06 when we first met. And and so we've done a lot of work alongside each other. And it's hard to believe that uh, that 15 to 20 years has come and gone so fast. Yeah. Time flies the older we get. I had a friend, he told me it's like a, a toilet roll. The faster you pull it, the shorter it gets and the faster it goes. So. <laughs> I like that. And who knows, we may have to reference that a couple of times through the show today. So, <laughs> But Joseph, a master of many areas of law. And, and as I said, I, I meant it when I said he kind of defies the typical stereotypes of, of attorneys. And I think technically I can say that because my twin sister is an attorney. So <laughs> yeah. I think I'm close enough to where I'm almost poking at myself. But we're going to talk today about a lot of different things. We're going to have some fun. We're going to talk predominantly and hone in a little bit on the checkbook control LLC and talk about an LLC strategy inside of a self-directed retirement account. And that's something that I think there's some good information out there, but but Joe certainly be a good legal source to be able to just share some context around why people do it, how they do it, and some of the things to to make sure that you're navigating through. So Joe, what's new in your world and, and how's business? I know you've got a bazillion things going on and certainly a whole lot has changed. I think in 05 or 06, you were just buying the building for your law practice. So what's happened since then? Catch us all up. Yeah. It, well, uh, we were just buying the building where I'm sitting today back in 2005, 2006. We didn't move in until 2007. And now it's for sale and we have some buyers who are very serious about it. So we're going to be selling this building because we've simply out, we're, we're outgrowing it. And it's about 3,500 square feet. And we're putting in an offer on a building just down the street from where we are. That's a little over 7,000 square feet because here I am at 52 years old and I'm looking at doubling the size of our, our employee count, our head count over the next four or five years to grow. A lot of people may know I already closed the residential title agency last year, seeing another housing economic downturn coming. I didn't want to go through that again. So uh, we went ahead and decided to shut that down at the end of 2022 after 18 years in business. And then um, we're also selling the timeshare title company. We do timeshare closings for some very, very, very large developers in timeshare. We do closings in seven jurisdictions, including uh, the Caribbean for them. And that is right now being acquired, should be done probably by the time this airs. And with that, I'm going to have a lot more time to spend on just practicing law as a real estate attorney, and also our land trust side of the business. We're going to be spending a lot more time on that, a lot more resources on that, because our goal is to grow that from where it is now to about five or six times its current size within two years. So we're really going to focus on that hard 
And fortunately, the capital from the sale of the timeshare title side is going to provide us that runway to do that kind of work. So that's that's where we're heading. And you got a lot going on. You're shedding some skin, it sounds like, and yeah. regrowing it back a little bit thicker and a little bit stronger in, in a little bit more streamlined categories. We may pull forward and resurrect that comment about the real estate market and closing the title company heading into 2023 as we get into discussion. I know that topic weighs heavy on a lot of people's minds, you know, which is where things headed. And, and you guys have obviously taken some decisive action uh, as a result. So we have seen uh, Joe's name on a lot of, of different activities from a legal standpoint. We don't just live in the same town as kind of the only piece that ties us in, but we see Joe doing a lot of legal work in a lot of variety in terms of real estate law or mortgage notes, closings. And as I mentioned more, we're going to take a little bit deeper dive here in just a few minutes is into that checkbook control and structure from an asset protection standpoint, but also from a navigating using an IRA a little bit more efficiently. And so we're going to dive in there. Joe, just maybe kind of to, to tie, put a bow on catching everybody up, if you're looking out over the next couple of years, you know, where is your primary focus from a practice standpoint? What do you see you and, and really your team spending the most time working through? Well, I, I've always gravitated toward transactional work. I don't do litigation anymore because I don't have to. I've fortunately built a practice that we have plenty of business doing transactions. We represent a lot of private lenders where we are advising them. We're preparing documents for the closings where they're lending money. So we spend a lot of our, our time there. A lot of new view customers, account holders, will come to us because they want to do their their self-directed IRA LLC. We, we prepare those for them. In just about any state, we do find that most of them happen to be in Florida, Wyoming, or Delaware, of course. But we also have done them in many, many other states around the country for them. I've gotten those filed for them. We advise a lot of people on that. Of course, the land trust side, we still will be dealing with that to a great extent its own separate company, an ancillary business that runs on its uh, own with its own staff and its own organization. Then just also I represent a lot of buyers and sellers and borrowers in closings, a lot of commercial, large residential. I've got a couple of residential closings right now that are over $3 million each that people are just paying cash for very expensive homes. So of course they want a lawyer to sort of walk them through that whether they're buying or selling, they don't want to just rely just on a realtor. So they'll usually get a lawyer involved on both sides of the transaction. So I will represent the buyers or the sellers, depending on who who calls me first. And we represent them and walk them through the transaction, make the title objections, argue with the, the closing agent, argue with the other attorney over repairs and concessions and things like that on these more complex transactions. So that's really where I spend a lot of my time. We also do a little bit of private lending ourselves, but that we've got a very closed group of borrowers that we know and we trust from years of experience. And a lot of my time is spent there with those borrowers and, and managing that money. Also, we have some properties. Of course, we have this office building. We have an office building in Richmond, Virginia, and we have a farm in North Carolina, plus the house here in Orlando, which is a pretty complex management in its own right as well. So I spent a lot of time dealing with all that as well. We are glad that you snuck in about 45 minutes for the <laughs> podcast. And uh, I appreciate that. And I will say I did not have to twist arms as hard as I may have thought to try to get him on the show. So 
we're happy to have you, Joe. And and uh, as you can hear, he's just a, a breadth and scope of knowledge. His experience covers so much. I think the the piece that I'll say that I've always appreciated from a legal standpoint is that Joe is an investor. And when you have legal representation that understands what it's like to be an investor, not just transactional laws that relates to real estate, you get a whole different perspective of of how to interpret the legal side of things, but also how to make sure that you're still managing it as a true investment and not just a real estate transaction. So I think that's a, a scope that you bring to the table that that's critical. We're going to enter into our first kind of break segment, if you're good, Joe, and, and uh, we're going to put you a little bit on the hot seat for the Return listeners, this is the quirky question of the day. For our new listeners, this is our podcast producer, and so this is kind of her world. But we always bring in a couple of, of quirky questions that our listeners ask throughout the week. If you do have quirky questions you want us to throw on the list and put in the envelopes, you can email those to Maggie with a Y at newviewtrust.com, spelled with a U, and we'll get those read aloud. So Maggie, let's see what we got here today. All uh, right, I'm going with the third envelope of three quirky <laughs> questions of the day, not to be confused with anything else. All right, Joe, I will tell you there's no wrong answers, right? Okay, <laughs> that's nice. You ready for this? Question number one, what fictional television family is your real life family most familiar to? Oh, okay. Oh, man. Growing up on TV, being a true Gen Xer, I grew up on TV. And who are we the closest to? Uh, there, uh, it was the one, uh, Michael Keaton, the uh, Family Ties. Okay. Because uh, my brother was uh, definitely Michael Keaton, and I was his sister, who was a little more liberal <laughs> compared <laughs> to him. We've grown up that way. But it's, yeah, we watched that show, and we were always like, yeah, that's us right there. Well, I love it. Family ties. And it is amazing. You know, whatever TV shows are so good at making you feel like you're in them yourselves. So <laughs> glad to know you've identified where you guys sit uh, the closest to. So, all right. Question number two, who or where would you haunt if you were a ghost? Where would I haunt if I were a ghost? Oh, gosh. Well, see, I want it to be someplace fun. Where they wouldn't expect it. Oh, probably a cruise ship. Okay. I like to be on a cruise ship. Yeah, yeah, an old cruise ship. Of course, and so you'd, you'd have to have an eye patch as well as a ghost. Yeah, you'd be that yeah. kind of pirate, uh, salty dog coming back. Yeah, keep the guests on their toes, and especially when they're drunk, stumbling back from the bar to their cabin at night. Just really give them a good scare. <laughs> Well, I got an upcoming cruise with my entire family for my sister and I's birthdays here in a few weeks. So if I'm the one stumbling back to the cabin and there's a ghost, Joe, you're getting a call from me. I just want you to know. All right. Quirky question number three, last one, and we'll let you off the hot seat here. In one sentence, how would you sum up the internet? Hmm. In one sentence. Oh, good. Well, at least it's not a word. It's a great place for communicating miscommunications. I love it. A great place to communicate miscommunications. So I love that. And, and it goes with, I think, my own internal philosophy is everyone's an expert. <laughs> you know, I saw a meme the other day and it said something to the effects of it's 
like the older gentleman sitting in front of his computer. It's used on a variety of things. And he says, I'm putting away my inflation degree to focus on bank management. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I, I see those things and think, first of all, golly, there's some funny people on the internet. And I just don't know how much time they have to come up with this stuff. But it is. It's true. It's, it is absolutely a great place to communicate miscommunication. I, I love that. And, and that segues us in really to, you know, this checkbook control model and concept, because there's probably a prime example of great ways to communicate miscommunication along the way. And, and sometimes I know we have to unravel the thought process of a lot of our clients. And I can only imagine when they get to you and are actually navigating the legal side, how much time you have to spend uneducating them to re-educate them on what's possible. I'm reminded of a lady who she wanted me to set up a an IRA LLC for her because she wanted to buy Bitcoin. She had she was going to buy Bitcoin. And the more we talked, I realized that she thought Bitcoin was like an actual coin, just like a gold coin that you got and could hold in your hand, but it was somehow tied to the computer. And she said, "Well, I've waited too late now to to set up the LLC because it's Bitcoin's now it's $45,000 and I only have $40,000 so I can't do it anymore. I'm just I'm just I just can't buy this anymore. And I told her I said it's probably best if you avoid this because it doesn't sound like you <laughs> quite understand what you're investing in. So yeah, she had she had seen some stuff on the internet and thought, okay, well I'm going to go buy one of these bitcoins for forty thousand dollars with my IRA money, and I need to do that through an LLC. And but now I've only now it's gone up to forty five thousand, so I just can't afford it anymore. And I'm I'm sure you have stories like that as well every day that you probably hear. I fortunately only heard heard it that one time, but it never ceases to amaze me the things that I hear. Uh, coming through the phone every once in a while. You kind of tee up that segue almost too easy for me, and I appreciate you doing that. One of the things that we talk about with LLCs, and and maybe just to back up to 50,000 feet, the strategy of putting an LLC that you control inside your IRA is an advanced level strategy. And to your point, Joe, this individual isn't even ready to invest in an investment like Bitcoin, right? And that, that's not IRA or non-IRA related. Right. Clearly, she hasn't done any level of homework or due diligence. Right. But the fact that she now wants to couple that with a strategy that's, I'd say, college level, right, yep. if we're using academics, just underscores this back to this. It's a great place to communicate miscommunications. And so when we talk about Chuck put control, we're talking about a strategy inside a strategy that is not for casual investors. A checkbook LLC is a way to take a self-directed IRA and invest it into an entity that the IRA owner likely has full control over. And then that IRA owner manages that LLC like the IRA, and it gives them some additional flexibility in writing their own checks and and managing the investment strategies deliberately. But I'll give a couple caveats. One is you never have to have an LLC. It is an optional element. Everything you want to do in an IRA can be done directly through the custodian like NewView. You don't have to have the LLC. The second caveat is there are a lot of times where the LLC makes tremendous sense, but whether or not it makes sense for you as an individual is personal. And you have to understand that you are putting yourself in the driver's seat and you are driving and ignorance of the law is not an excuse. I didn't know the speed limit. Sorry, I was driving 80. You're going to get yourself into trouble. So I give those 
kind of caveats, because as we talk through this today, it is important if you don't know how this works and you're not prepared to get behind the wheel and handle all that horsepower, let's talk alternatives, right? Let's find a different solution because it's not a requirement. But for those that are more advanced and those that do want to take this model of self-direction and, and maybe buy assets that make more sense in an LLC or they want to have a little bit quicker control of the money or more deliberate control, then yeah, this LLC is a great strategy. And, and the goal today is not to convince you one way or the other, but just to provide some information so that you can make an informed decision on whether or not you should take some time to educate yourself. Last thing I'll say before I, I throw some questions at you, Joe, is that if you listen to this podcast and think you're ready to make a decision on whether or not you need an LLC or not, the answer is you're not ready. And I say that because we're not going to get into any level of detail that's going to make the decision for you. We're just going to give you some areas to go navigate. We have stuff all over our website, Joe. I know you have done a lot of content on this as well. So make sure that you're utilizing the show notes. We'll have some links in there to some content that you can go and pull and really educate yourself on how it works. But while we've got Joe and we've got ultimately one of the experts in this space, let's start with just basic structure. You mentioned earlier that you guys file in most states, but it usually kind of winds its way back down to Florida. I think maybe Nevada and Delaware, if I recall, but let's start there. Let's assume that I've determined I want to set up an LLC inside my IRA, and it does make sense, right? For whatever the reason or rationale is, how do I go about just starting on domiciling that LLC? And, and at a high level, what matters in domiciling it? And really, what does it matter? Well, there are a few questions I always ask clients before we get started. Number, the first question is, how long have you had an IRA at all, a self-directed IRA? Because I want to know what they're knowledge is, it goes back to, to what you were talking about. If they don't understand what's a prohibited transaction and who's a disqualified person, they really shouldn't be at this advanced level of, well, I'm just going to do it on my own. I really would like them to have a a true custodian looking over their shoulder on their transactions. And I've turned away some clients in the past because they're brand new at it. Most of our folks are investing in real estate in some way. They're making loans, private loans. They're investing in real estate overseas or they're investing in foreign securities in some way. So that's the next question I always ask is, well, what are you doing with this? What are you doing with this this LLC? And if they're looking at, they want to buy property that they're going to hold long-term and rent it out, for instance, I'm going to ask them, okay, well, where's the property located that you're buying most? And if they say, it's in Pennsylvania, I'm going to say, well, then it's best that we form this LLC in Pennsylvania. If, if they are going to be lending money, I'm going to ask them what state are they primarily going to be doing that in. If it's Florida, well, okay, fine. Let's form it in Florida. So it really depends on what you're doing. A lot of the people they are, they're buying, they just want to be able to, to day trade, set up a, a, an account and, and day trade all the funds, or they want to buy securities and commodities and bonds and things like that. For those folks, I'll tell them, it doesn't really matter where we set it up. So you may set it up in a state that's cheap, fast, and easy and provides anonymity. So Wyoming kind of thing. But in most cases, it's where the the client lives because they're going to be doing what they're doing in that state. Or if it doesn't matter, we're going to set it up in Florida because that's where the custodian is with New View. Or it's going to be in a state where they want the anonymity, Delaware or Wyoming, depending on the price and how much it costs per year to maintain that LLC, the, the statutory registered agent. So once we've 
walked through that with them and figured out the best place to file it, then we just we have to file articles of organization, which are, is like the constitution for that company. And we file that in the jurisdiction, the secretary of state in most states, the division of corporations, the different states call it different things. Pennsylvania's got a name for it, Virginia calls it the SCC, the Commissioner of Corporations, the State Commission of Corporations. So different states call it different things, but it always comes down to it's where you form. A corporation is also usually the place where you file the LLC. Okay. So we file the articles of organization, typically online in one of those states, and there's magic language, a paragraph that we try to put into the articles to make it clear that it is an IRA LLC If the IRS ever comes knocking, they can look at the articles and go, okay, you've got the magic language in there. You're good. We like the language. Good. Well, a couple things that I hear. Number one, it's not a one size fits all. And I share that because I talk to clients all the time that say, you know, I'm going to set up an LLC, you know, and I'll say, great, let your legal or tax professional say, I'm going to go do it myself. And so again, it's, I'm not here to tell you, you can't do it yourself. It's not something that you have to have a law degree to do. But, you know, where you domicile it, how and why does matter. One of the things that maybe myths, if you will, uh, that I'd like to debunk, especially from a kind of that, I love what you said, it's the internet is where you go to communicate misinformation, is that so many people think that setting up an LLC is cheaper than actually self-directing through the custodian directly. So the alternative to an LLC is that you set up a self-directed IRA, and let's just assume with it, it's with our firm, NewView. You pay us fees, of course, right? Just like you pay Schwab or Fidelity or TD fees. What they think is that by setting up the LLC, it's cheaper. And what most don't realize is that unless you're buying multiple assets or transacting regularly, it's actually more expensive because you've got to pay to set up the LLC. The LLC has its own fees and annual fees, and those differ by state. I think California, surprise, surprise, comes in at the highest, if I recall. I think it's something like $800 a year just for the LLC itself. So I share that kind of debunking that myth, because if you're setting up an LLC for fees and fees alone, you're probably missing the mark, right? You wouldn't go to advanced strategies to save a nickel. But if you are transacting in a way where it's advantageous, then of course, use it as a tool. But then that means you've got a lot of transactions. You shouldn't be setting this up on your own if you're doing lots of these transactions. So it would underscore the need to go talk to some legal counsel and make sure that you're selecting the right state, what types of transactional activity, all the things that that Joe just mentioned. So I appreciate you putting some color on the geographic area. I think that's an area that most people just assume that a state's a state's a state and LLC's and LLC's and LLC. And what I'm hearing you say, Joe, is not even close. Right. And I think the most successful and happy clients we've had who do the IRA LLC are people who do a lot of private money lending because they've got the money in the account. They they know how much it is and they can wire straight from the account to fund the loan and the money comes right back into the account for the payments. But they're doing 10, 12 loans a year. And that gets to be burdensome to, you know, go back to the custodian and send the docs back and forth and everything. So also tax liens. We've got people who buy hundreds and hundreds of tax liens a year. And again, they need speed and control. And so that's that's what I tell a lot of people. A lot of life in general comes down for business and legal comes down to speed and control and anonymity. You've got those three factors. And it's it's like having three legs. You can't run with three legs. You can have 
speed and anonymity. You can have control and speed, but it's really hard to have all three of these speed, anonymity, and control all in one and still operate in a way that's safe, not safe from regulatory oversight, more safe from losing all your money to fraudsters, maybe third parties out there who who take advantage of, hey, it's they're so anonymous that I can steal everything that they've got before they realize it because nobody really knows who they are. So I can go and pose as them. Things like that come to mind. And I always, we go through all this when I'm talking with clients or potential clients, just to let them know. And I'm a little odd, unlike most attorneys, a lot of attorneys and a lot of organizations out there will just sell, sell, sell you and say, oh, this is the best thing. This is the best thing for you. And you need all of this stuff. Probably 50% of the time when I meet with somebody, I'm telling them, no, you don't need us. Don't do not do right. this. I would love to take your money, but whether it's a, an LLC, a plain LLC, an IRA LLC, a land trust, whatever it may be, there's a lot of times I just go, you're going to waste a lot of money if you do this. So just keep your money, keep doing what you're doing, and call me in a couple of years for a checkup, and we'll see how you're doing with it kind of thing. Well, and that's that's so critical. And I love clients that that know what they want. But I think what happens is we live in a world where the internet gives us a sense of confidence, false bravado, if you will. And and I won't suggest it's a bad place or makes us dumb. I think as a society, we're in an information age and we're all we all benefit gravely from that. But too much information can really cause lots of challenges. And so you kind of have the first, like a, a dartboard, right? You've got the bullseye is that you know what you know, and then you've got that next wrong, right? I think it's technically the double, and that's the, you know what you don't know. Right. And then you've got that ladder around the real thin one, which is the triple in a dartboard. And that's the, you don't know what you don't know. So many clients, especially when it comes to self-directing their retirement account, they start navigating without really being mindful of that don't know what they don't know. And it, it means they don't ask questions. They don't take the time to, to educate. If they read something that, that differs from the way they think, they don't pause and wonder which one's right. You know, They just assume that the source that they read it from originally, which caters conveniently to their desire, is automatically now the one that's accurate. So we're big fans in our community from an investment standpoint, from a self-directed IRA standpoint, you know, from an asset standpoint is the sooner you get in the don't know what you don't know category, the better. And the sooner you find credible sources to help you kind of navigate that, the better. So I appreciate you pointing that out, Joe. That's an area of, of weakness for a lot of investors. And sometimes it can get them into trouble. You mentioned earlier, there's some rules and IRAs have rules and they're governed by the IRS. These aren't rules that are done by the local state. These aren't rules that are done by self-built governing bodies that, that will slap your hand. It's the IRS. If you think about what a self-directed IRA is, it is a tax tool. And the thing that the IRS has the greatest level of insight in governance of and the greatest area of care and concern is taxation. And so if you're in a position where you can have an IRA that's investing and doing these activities and paying no tax, the IRS is okay with that. Congress created IRAs for that purpose. But you better believe that when, when they get an opportunity to, to catch someone misbehaving, or even if it's the don't know what you don't know, speeding down the road where you didn't know what the speed limit was posted at, there can be some very egregious fines. And I'll 
come back to this LLC, that there was about five years ago, and and I'm sure Joe, you probably saw this and dealt with this too. There was this big, and maybe it was maybe it was ten years ago. Forgive me, but there was this big craze about buying gold in your IRA through an LLC yeah. and holding it yourself. Yeah. And the idea was that you would set up an LLC, like Joe's talking about. You would go buy gold, physical gold, not the Bitcoin that actually isn't really a coin, but the, <laughs> the gold that really is a coin. And then you would just store it under your mattress and you could sleep so well at night because you were in complete control. And we turned a lot of these groups down. They came to us saying, we're promoting this structure. And, and we said, you cannot take physical possession. The rules don't allow it. You can manage the assets. You can oversee a piece of property. You can determine that, that your borrower on a note paid their, their note payment. But you can't have 50 gold bullion coins just sitting in your house. And sure enough, in the last year or so, the IRS found someone, audited them and said, wait a minute, you've got gold that you hold yourself in this checkbook IRA strategy. And boy, they absolutely, you know, they don't catch a lot of people, but they threw the gauntlet at them. Yeah. And it really, I, I got a lot of calls and emails off that. That generated a lot of buzz because people suddenly were worried about, well, but is Bitcoin treated the same way. And I had to do a lot of research. I did a lot of research. I read a lot of opinion letters that month about that. But yeah, I mean, precious metals are treated specifically in the rules about exactly how they have to be handled. And the IRS has found Bitcoin is considered to be like a security. So it's not a coin coin. It's called a coin. It's not a coin. So they were okay with that. But I got a lot of very scared people all of a sudden because of that, that case coming down. But the case was very, very fact-specific on it was actual physical coins that these people were buying. They had it shipped to their house. They didn't even have it shipped to their house in the name of the LLC. They had it shipped to their house in their personal names. They kept it in a safe in their house, which the tax court said, nope, can't do that either. If it's an IRA-held asset, it has to be held by the custodian, not by the beneficiary. So. It was a scary case. But yeah, I mean, that's one of those little slippery slopes that people had seen on the internet for years and thought, oh, well, if everybody's doing it, I can do it too. And they just did it. And the penalties are draconian for this kind of thing. I think that's a lot of my counseling. A lot of the questions I get is, hey, can I do this with my IRA, whether it's in an LLC or not? Can I do this? Can I do that? And it's sometimes I have to do research. Other times I hear the fact pattern. I just go right off the bat. No, you cannot do that. Or sure, you can. That's fine. But it's very, very common to have those things. And again, it's you don't know what you don't know. But the big thing is spotting that and at least understanding, hey, there's this thing called prohibited transactions and disqualified persons. And I need to know when I may be bumping into that in the dark and who to call. When I've got that question. And again, if you're dealing directly with your custodian and they're looking over your shoulder, they're going to probably catch that and go, wait a minute, you can't sell this asset to your daughter. You can't do that tax free, at least. Or you can't just give it to your daughter, things like that. Whereas if your money and the asset is in an LLC and you go, oh, I'm just going to go ahead. I've owned this house in my IRA LLC for 10 years as a rental home. And my daughter just got married and I will give it to her as a wedding gift. Here you go, daughter. And okay, that was a major problem you just created for yourself. And it's it's hard to undo that. So just understanding the basics of those rules. And that's why I like people who have been 
under the sort of watchful eye of the custodian for a while at least, so they at least understand prohibited transactions, disqualified persons before they jump to this more advanced field of self-directed IRA LLCs to take their own assets. Yeah, there's no license required. And as a result, everybody thinks that they're capable. And the short answer is everybody is capable. They're just not capable today. And they've got to put some effort and energy towards becoming capable. And kind of brings me to maybe debunking myth number two that's out there. And that is that a LLC inside an IRA does not give you any new rules. The rules are the rules of IRAs. And so your setting up of an LLC does not buy some new set of rules or assume that your IRA is no longer in control. Therefore, the IRS no longer has jurisdiction. An IRA-owned LLC lives and dies under the same exact set of rules that an IRA does. So if you cannot do it in the, from a custodial standpoint, you can't do it in an LLC. The rules are the rules. So it's really important that you understand the why behind the LLC. If, if you're doing this because you think it's going to allow you to, to rent out your property to your daughter, you know, which is prohibited, it's not. You could do it and whether or not you get in trouble for it, I suppose, is the separate question. But make no mistake, the act of, right, of giving you know, or renting a property to your daughter in an IRA is prohibited, LLC or not. So that's something that we hear a lot of, we see a lot of is, well, I want to do X or Y. And when the answer is no, they revert back to, well, what if I set up an LLC? Right. And <laughs> it just tells you that there's some misnomers out there on the internet or wherever they're getting their source of information that this LLC is somehow inherently giving them this new set of guidelines and opportunities. So I love what you said, Joe. I mean, it's really about speed and efficiency and anonymity and, and control. Those are all great reasons for the LLC. Nowhere in there is there new rules, sidestepping rules, violating the rules, elimination of the rules. It just allows you to do what you can do maybe faster, maybe with more control or maybe more anonymously. So let's maybe hit one, one additional key point here and one last kind of piece on this LLC model. And, and if we're looking out and you're an investor that's, that's got a self-directed IRA, right? And maybe you've had it for a while or maybe you're about to set it up. What would be the top two or three things to consider on both the pro and the con side as to whether or not you should have this LLC or whether or not maybe it's not worth the effort and energy that's required? Well, a, a good question is, again, what are you going to be investing in? If it's just you're going to buy one thing and hold it for years and years and, and let it sit and stew, probably don't need to go through the LLC IRA to do that. You could just use the custodian to do that. And there are multiple ways that that can be handled. If it's maybe buying real property, there are other ways that can be handled to protect the IRA away from the liability of what may happen at that property and vice versa. What your experience is, I get a lot of calls from people who have just lost their job and they're, they've got a massive 401k and they're going to be rolling it into an IRA anyway. So rather than you know, rolled into a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA with a non-self-directed custodian, they're going to go ahead and they're going to self-direct because they're close enough to retirement. They've got time. Why not? We'll self-direct. But they don't really understand self-direction yet. And they're calling me saying, okay, I'm going to roll it over and then I'm going to put it into an LLC immediately and I'm going to start doing XYZ with it. And I go, eh, leave it with the custodian for a while. Maybe not jump to that. Another con is knowing where to file it. 
because again, we learned this. We had a, a client, for instance, who lives in California and we were just going to form an IRA LLC for them, going to be in Arizona. And then it was, they were going to be buying property in Costa Rica. And it was an attorney and he called me a little bit later and he said, wait, just put everything on hold because I just found out regardless of where I form an LLC and regardless of where the property is that it, it holds, simply because I'm a resident of California, the tax is horrendous on me because I'm the manager. Just being the manager of that LLC will kill me. So things like little little details like that that we've picked up through experience over the years are things that are very helpful. Big thing not to do as well, of course, is you don't set it up on your own. I, I can't tell you how many times we've been called in after a person set theirs up two or three years ago and then they realized that they took some education, they realized, whoops, I've done this all wrong. And we go in and we have to file articles of amendment and everything and, and then redo the whole new amended and restate operating agreement and try to fix the junk that they created just by going online and buying an LLC, just a regular LLC through LegalZoom or something. They didn't do it right. So these are things that you you have to watch out for on the con side. On the pro side, again, my clients who've done best with it, high volume, private, hard money lenders. It has streamlined their lives and made it much faster for them to lend money than it was before. Also for just for more advanced clients who are also good at day trading and buying securities on their own, they enjoy being able to open an account in the name of that IRA LLC and putting the money in it. And a lot of them, while their money's at rest, they're sitting there investing it in securities and buying and selling and, and taking advantage of whatever the market's doing in the stock market. And then they'll turn around and go, okay, well, now I found a mortgage I'm going to make for this friend of mine over here. And then I'm going to buy this property over there, or I'm going to buy an interest in a limited partnership over there. So they're just doing different things, but they can just do it quickly because they're more sophisticated. It's very good for sophisticated investors with a lot of experience or a lot of time on their hands. They, they tend to do well too. I, I think that's about all I can think of right now off the top of my head, but I'm sure others could come to me as we go through. Well, and and I know you've written some blogs and, and articles about that. And if you're okay with it, we'll get that stuff tucked into the show notes. So for those listening, you can grab some links there and, and go take a look. The idea of pros and cons is so important. And, and I, I love, Joe, the way you kind of walk through that. And because you really highlighted the things that are just of consideration. And it's always in the eye of the beholder. What's a pro to you may be a con to me and vice versa. And so Make sure that you're evaluating not just what a self-directed checkbook control LLC is, but what are the pros and cons at a high level and then which ones matter the most to you and, and the ones that do should be shaping the decision. And just remember to not lose sight of that. Don't know what you don't know. And, you know, folks like Joe can make sure that they're walking you through that, that area. And sometimes the best thing for your attorney to ever tell you is no. It doesn't feel good at the time because you, you always want them to say yes and feel like you have that veil over you that can't be pierced by any, any other parties. But the reality is, is, you know, attorneys can only represent the law. They can't create it. And so we've got to sometimes step away from what we're looking to do because it's just not permissible. 
and other times it's perfectly permissible. And yeah, this LLC is a fantastic strategy. Jump all over it and and take full advantage of it. So Joe, thank you for your context. I'm going to put you on the hot seat before we bring the show to a close. And we're, we're recording this in March. And March has been an interesting month when you eventually listen to this, either when it airs or, or down the road on the major podcast platforms. And you're listening to this kind of looking back, you're going to remember March as being probably, I think, one of the will become probably the most pivotal month in all of the discussions that have been going on for many months about recession and where we are. And you've got challenges on the banking side that kind of sprung out of nowhere, although I think they've been slowly, slowly growing as the Fed hikes interest rates in unprecedented levels. And so we've, we've kind of have this area where it feels like we've been here before, Joe, you know, like we were sitting around having coffee in 2007, having some of these same discussions Yet it feels so different because the marketplace isn't the same and the risk to the banks is not all these defaulted mortgages. It's bad bonds, right? Who would have ever thought the day where conservative low yield bonds is actually problematic, right? I mean, that's the safest, easiest, most conservative investment strategy. So it does feel a bit puzzling. And so I'm going to put you on the hot seat as we enter into the world where there's a Fed decision. It's tomorrow in in our world, but it's the middle of March. So I'm going to put you on the hot seat, Joe, with with a very deliberate question. And that is based on everything that you know today and all the misconceptions that you've read all over the internet, is the Fed raising rates tomorrow or are they pausing rates tomorrow? I'll be very surprised if they don't still raise rates by a quarter of a point. Credit Suisse collapse earlier just happened. It, It was forced to be purchased by USB yesterday on our time. And I think that may play into it a little bit, but I don't know what it is with the Fed. But when unemployment was soaring at five, six, seven, eight percent, that's not an emergency. Well, it's okay. We'll get around to that. But as soon as inflation starts going up, which affects the supply side of things, alarm bells go off. We've got to raise rates. We've got to just put this pain on everybody real fast because inflation's going up. Now, inflation, it does. It does hurt, especially lower socioeconomic classes. It's very hard on them. And I, and I do understand that. But it seems like the Fed really has gone gangbusters here with absolutely no concern. Actually, a desire to put people out of work. Their desire is to create higher unemployment. And I wrote about this in my blog months ago, last year, that, hey, folks, you know, everybody who's screaming about inflation, you do understand that according to the Fed, the only cure for that is you're out of a job. So do you want to just be paying more for something, but at least you have a paycheck? Or do you want to not even have a paycheck and you can't afford anything? And, you know, I just sort of threw that out there in exasperation at the time. And over the few past few months, it's just at this point, I'm just like, eh, whatever. You know, nobody seems to care. Everybody's all mad because eggs are have increased 5.5% in in price over the past year. That's the hot button topic. But it angers me that instead they go, but it's fine if we put 800,000 people out of work. That's because that's what will solve this problem of eggs going up 5.5% over a year. And that's where I see us heading. Now, the Fed was going to keep raising rates at 
three quarters of a point, half a point until something broke and they did it. They broke the banking system and our banking system in general in the United States is the most stable, most trusted financial system in the world. Everybody wants to put their money here from around the world for safety, for security. We're, we're some of the most highly regulated. You know what you're getting into, transparency. Fraud is, is low compared to a lot of other countries. Corruption is very low compared to other countries and, and economies. So they want to put their money here. But it's all based on people having confidence that when they walk into that bank and say, I need to make withdrawal, the Silicon Valley folks, $2 billion or $200 million, my money's going to be there and I can withdraw it and I can send it somewhere else. So whenever people started seeing one bank fall, two bank falls, one bank has to be bought by another bank, another bank has to be Flagstar in our world just uh, this morning took over Signature Bank. So, you know, you start seeing that and you start going, hmm, and I can't tell you how many clients I talk to every single day right now of what are you doing with your money? How are you insuring your money? Because it's only insured up to $250,000. I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of this month, the U.S. Treasury says all deposits are insured no matter how much they are. We're just insuring everybody's deposit, even if it's over $250,000, because I read a story yesterday that there are at least 190 other banks in the United States right now that are susceptible to bank runs, just like these other banks just went through in the past two weeks. So until we restore that confidence that people know, okay, yeah, I've got $2 million sitting in that bank, or I've got a $400 million sitting in that bank. I'm not worried about it because the U.S. government has said it will cover my deposits no matter what. That will restore the confidence. Bank runs will stop. And we'll get back to a more level playing field. But in the meantime, as I wrote in my blog last week, banks failing actually is good for mortgage rates. Mortgage rates typically fall and they have been, we're down to about six and a half percent as today. We were over 7% two weeks ago before the bank failures. So we're already seeing that immediately. And if the Fed slows down, it's expected that interest, if, if we go into a full-blown recession where, in, where unemployment goes up one or two points, we're going to see interest rates back down around five and a quarter percent to five percent from what I've been reading. So that's what I foresee over the next month to two months. Well, there's a lot to be had in that answer. And yeah, it's an interesting time. And, and again, I think we'll all look back at March as kind of a pivotal month in the grand scheme of whatever this recessionary talks that, that we're having, whether we're in it or headed into it, uh, a little bit of circuit 2008, right? So yeah, be interesting to see what the Fed does. And it's no matter what your your political bent is, left, right, or down the middle, anytime, I think we'd all agree that a small group of people making a level of choices that have so much impact is a scary place to be. And, and I absolutely love what you said from a Fed standpoint is that the fact that they're combating inflation by putting people out of work doesn't seem logical at all. In fact, last time I the jobs report came out and I read an article that said the jobs report is too good. And I'm thinking to myself, gosh, what a time to be alive right. when that's a concern. And so and then the last time Jerome Powell was testifying a couple of weeks ago in front of Congress, 
he was grilled. Not It wasn't Republicans or Democrats. It was both parties were grilling him about. So your answer to this is to put people out of work. And, yeah. you know, and he sits back, he says, well, what would you have us do? Just forget about inflation. And, and they're sort of like, well, maybe not completely give it the red alert priority you are giving it. Maybe, maybe give it the priority that you gave unemployment when unemployment was this high. And another thing that, I mean, that was shown compared to 2008. In 2008, when we were collapsing, we had hundreds of banks, and I wrote about this last week on my blog as well, hundreds of banks every year for three years were going, were failing. And the Fed was pumping money into the banks, putting it on the supply side. And if you look at our climb out of that recession, it's like we dropped like this off the screen. Then we came back up, but it was a five-year slog out of that. And it wasn't. Now take the pandemic. Same thing. We dropped off the cliff, but instead of funding the supply side, putting the money at the banks and letting them do with it as they saw fit, the money went straight to the people. It went to a demand side. And so now people could spend money. You see, we came out of that one. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a 90 degree turn right out of the pandemic that we came out of it. So it's to me right there, it vindicates that, hey, sometimes demand side, putting the money into the demand side solves the problem. May have put a little bit too much money into demand, may have kept doing it a little too long. And that's contributed to inflation. Corporate profits are, are about 30% of the inflation. I'm not knocking it because our corporations have definitely profited off of, of the past couple of years of inflation more than, than we have in our entire history. But I just think the Fed, number one, some people in, in the San Francisco Fed need to lose their jobs because they saw this coming. They slipped on their jobs. They're not elected, so they can't be thrown out of office. They never bleed. They never get fired. They need to lose their jobs and they need to be publicly humiliated for letting those banks fail out there because it's their fault for letting it go. But the Fed, I think, needs to get a little bit of some bitter medicine out of this. And I think coming out of Congress, both parties are not happy with it, with the way the Fed's been run lately. Public is not happy. And you're hearing about it from everybody, all sides. And uh, I think they're going to, I think the Fed's maybe going to be a little bit humbled by this, I'm hoping. And uh, they'll bleed a little bit and maybe some people will lose their jobs over it. And with that, it may sober them up a little bit and they'll be a little more careful when they go into red alert, raise the interest rates through the roof immediately uh, mode. They'll slow down a little bit. Well, thanks, Joe. It sounds like we could almost do an entire episode of the podcast just on Fed and, and monetary policy, but hopefully we can avoid having to have that show. And, and yeah, I think we'll look back and kind of see what, what level of decision tomorrow's Fed interest rate hike or, or pause will have on the overall economy. So last question for you, Joe, this is how we end every single podcast that we do. It's the learn before you burn segment. Best way I can make sure everybody knows what we're talking about for, for our new listeners. Basically, how do we decouple the experience and the lesson, right? We're all hardwired to want to touch the stove because we just want to, and it burns. And so what are the things that, you know, what's the one thing that you can share with the group that may cause our listeners to not touch the stove despite all their burning desires, but this way they get the actual lesson of that hot stove, but not the experience. What do you got for us? Talk to people who have had the experience. There's a couple of ways to do that. One is you go to school, you go to class, you actually learn from people who have had this experience, people who have studied it a lot more than and thought about it a lot more than you ever would have or could have. That's what I do. My dad has always said that 
everything's an education and you always pay for it. You pay for it in pain. You touch a stove. You pay for it in money to lawyers after the fact to fix the problem. You pay for it in time, wasted time. And to me, as I've gotten older, I've learned that I'm not necessarily just wiser than the generation behind me and smarter than the generation ahead of me. That generation ahead of me is wiser than I am. And I need to listen to them. I mean, it's it's taken me over 50 years to get to that point. But until you get there, you are going to make the mistakes. And the best thing you can do is when you do make those mistakes, try to handle them as quickly and as cheaply <laughs> as you can and get out of it as fast as you can. I was going to say, you, you said earlier, I've, I'm an investor as well. I've also been a plaintiff. I've also been a defendant in lawsuits. I know what it's like to sue. I know what it's like to be sued. And so I bring that to every client consultation I ever have is that experience, not just of law school and 27 years of practicing law and seeing the mistakes that everybody else has made, but also my own, whether it's I'm suing somebody and for hundreds of thousands of dollars and walk out with $10,000 or being sued for something that happened that never was my fault, but you still had to deal with it. So listen to those people. Don't think that you're smarter than them. Listen to their wisdom, take it for what it's worth and their experience and drink it in and remember it and use it going forward. I love it. You nailed it. And and I think it's the clip out of this entire show that if you take one thing is that is education is expensive, right? You can pay for it to get it up front or you can pay for it at the end in legal fees and, and penalties, fines, lawsuits. And so I just absolutely love what you said, because I think it's so true. We want to cut the corners everywhere we can. Going back to the LLCs, it's like, I'm just going to set this up because Joe's going to charge me too much. I'll just do it myself. And the reality is make a bad investment, um, invest in a prohibited transaction, take a distribution directly from the LLC that you shouldn't have, and it'll cost you 10, 20, 30, 100x more than that legal review would have cost. So there you guys have it, the learn before you burn. Well, Joe, always good to see you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. I hope everybody kind of takes what I said earlier about Joe is, is a unique attorney because he gets it. He kind of breaks the stereotype of most attorneys. He doesn't just practice law. He's practical in his pursuit from an investment standpoint and from a legal perfection. So Joe, thanks again for your time. We appreciate having you. My pleasure. For those of you out there uh, joining us for the first time, make sure that you like, share, and subscribe. We'd love to have you continue to uh, to listen to the content that we're putting out. We'll continue to drive content that hopefully is stuff that's important to you. If you have ideas or content for the show, you can send me an email directly at jason at newviewtrust.com. As I mentioned earlier, all of the information as well as some of the stuff will twist Joe's arm to share with us via the show notes so you can get in touch with him, but also get to know more about uh, some of the things we referenced in terms of blog posts and articles. We'll put all of that into the show notes as well. So thank you again, Joe. Thank you for, for taking the time to join us. Thanks again, everybody, for taking the time to join us on the All About Alts podcast. We look forward to seeing you guys next week. Thank you so much for listening. We hope the information within this podcast has given you the tools that you need to find your way to financial independence. We would love to partner with you on this journey. Text ALTS, that's A-L-T-S, to 407 407- 708-1853 to learn more about how to get started today. Don't forget to follow us to make sure you don't miss a second of content and we'll see you next week.